0: Well, if you have your Bible, uh, let's turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. You know that uh, we have been coming through each book of the New Testament, really the whole Bible, we're in the New Testament right now, and we have been focusing on how that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the predominant character in the Bible, uh, how he is presented in each book. Each book, because it's God's book, written about his son and all the events that transpire to bring his son not only to the nation of Israel, but then to us as our Savior. Uh, It's all written around him. And I learned many, many years ago that for uh, an acute Bible student who really wants to wring everything out of the Bible that you can, uh, you're going to find that uh, almost everything in the Bible means something. And everything in the Bible has some kind of study in it that you can learn more about God, because God wrote the book and he built it around himself. So, you know, every book of the Bible has, and I've learned this many, many years ago, is portrays the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in a different fashion. Each one will give you a different aspect about his life, and that's what we've been trying to do and uh, coming through each book of the Bible. And we started 1 Corinthians last week, and we, we learned some things about the church at Corinth, didn't we? There's two books in the Bible written to you about the church at Corinth. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians, we saw really how not to build a church not how and not how to do ministry. We saw the danger that happens in, of getting saved and not having somebody begin to teach you and help you to grow spiritually. I don't know where the idea ever got started. I don't even know how it stayed alive, you know, the concept that you get saved and you just continue on in life, you know, and someday you wake up, you know, and just know the Bible. God never wrote the Bible and intended for you to get saved or me to get saved and then just figure it out yourself. We find the pattern (coughs) set all the way back in the New Testament. And when Paul started these churches, when Paul started these churches, he started these churches and then he greatly influenced them Even after he left, he trained up a man, put the man in charge as the pastor, and then even after he left, he's checking on them and and writing them letters, and this is what the books of the Bible that deal with uh, the churches that Paul writes to, this is what they deal with. And we see now the danger and how problems in churches and problems in Christians, the importance of spiritual growth, the importance of not just getting saved, though that's vitally important, But at the same time, the importance that you begin to grow spiritually. That's what God's plan is for you. And God's plan in doing that, obviously, is the New Testament local church. And we see now today in this great study uh, coming through this book how that all lays itself out. I I want you to, you know, uh, take good notes on 1 Corinthians. I want you to make a real effort for it. And I think it'll really be important because once we're finished with these books, you know that we're going to come back and we're going to really hit hard and focus the book of Second Corinthians. You already have got a good outline and you already should have that in your Bible once we get through this because I'm going to take a little time and, and, and lay all these things out. I think that's really important simply from the aspect that, that you have a, a, an understanding of these two books. First Corinthians, he, they do just about everything wrong. And in 2 Corinthians, he writes them, and now they want to do what's right, and they, they, they begin to listen to Paul. And that's what makes First Corinthians and 2 Corinthians such great books. It's the contrast. In 1 Corinthians, they're told almost every chapter multiple issues that he tries to straighten them out on. In 2 Corinthians, after the desire to be straightened out, then Paul teaches them, the aspect of ministry. And Second Corinthians is, is the book in the Bible on the handbook of ministry. And that's why where our church is at, where many of you are at, we're ready for that aspect of it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really good to, uh, to hit these points because these are things that you really need to know. I think it's absolutely imperative if you're going to learn the Bible that before you try to get into the books of the Bible themselves and ferret it all out and find out what it means, you need to understand what those books really are all about. You need, to get, you need to learn the background of each book of the Bible. It's so important. It's like getting to know somebody before you get married to them. And certainly before you engage the Bible as far as getting into the books, you need to understand, uh, just like marrying somebody for life, find out everything about them you can, their background aspect, so that there's no surprises later on down the line. And, of course, that's what happens when we don't do that with the books of the Bible. We jump into a book, we don't really have an understanding of how it all, it all lays itself out. The church of, of Corinth, in its understanding, the issues they have, uh, it really helps us. It really helps us in our own church but it helps us deal with people because, as I said last week, churches are made up with people. And the problems that churches have are just because of the people that are in those churches have those problems. So we looked last week, and I think we got, got into the first two chapters. Hopefully we'll get a little farther than that today. <clears throat> but we looked at, in chapter 1, they're, they're all messed up on the fact that who baptized who. They're, they're setting some kind of spiritual hierarchy based on the notoriety of the person or the fame of the person that, that baptized them. And the list there is Christ would be at the top of the list and then, of course, Paul, and then right on down the line, Apollos and Cephas. And they're saying because Christ baptized me and you're baptized by Cephas, you know, I'm more spiritual than you are. And that's, the, that's where this church is at. We saw in chapter 1 also the second issue that they had <coughs> is that they're, they're putting so much emphasis on man's wisdom. And we learned a great principle in first Samuel chapter 16 last week where God talks to us about not looking at the outward appearance but looking at what's on the inside. And he talks about how that God takes the base things, the foolish things, the weak things to confound the wise. And the reason why he does that, we saw last week is that no flesh can glory in his presence. Then we moved into chapter 2 and we talked about the aspect of man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. And I told you the great story in there of Exodus chapter 18 about Moses and Jethro. And we laid that out Thursday night. Somebody asked a question and I went through it. Probably one of the greatest studies we've ever taken and you should get that into your Bible if you don't have it. And then we talked about getting advice from God and the Word of God through biblical principles versus the advice of men who do not use biblical principles. All in all, you want to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed as Christ our Lord. And this is the problem. I gave you another great verse, Luke six forty six. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? That is absolutely in paramount that you understand that verse defining what Lord Jesus Christ being the Lord of our life is. Well, today we're going to move to chapter 3, and I want to begin reading here in verses 1 through 7, and we'll again begin to hit some of the high points here of some of the issues that they have. Now, here's what he say And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able." For you are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Now, here comes the second issue. Here comes the issue of this chapter, and this is incredible. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos a watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now, do you know what they're doing in this chapter? Where in chapter one, they were arguing about who baptized who and tagging some kind of spirituality to that. Now, in this chapter, they're arguing about who won who to Christ. And they're saying, well, Paul won me to Christ. Well, Paulus won me to Christ. Well, I'm more spiritual because Paul was the great apostle to the church. Therefore, I got some, I guess, I got a lot more of the Holy Spirit from him than you got from Paulus." And of course, that's simply not true. Clearly, in chapter 3, in the first three verses here, we see the issue. One, he can't speak to them as spiritual. But he can speak to them as carnal. That's not good. Carnal means worldly. And then he says, even as babes in Christ. And he talks about the fact that I fed you with milk and not with meat. Now, milk in the Bible is the basic fundamental things of the Bible. Meat in the Bible will always be the doctrinal things. And you find that that's where churches are mostly at today. You find the average Christian that was been saved, what, 5, 10, 15 years, maybe 20 years, They know nothing of any kind of substance about their Bible. They know what they learned in Sunday school or what they've heard repetitively over their lifetime, but as far as opening up the Bible and really getting into it and understanding it, they're as lost as a golf ball in high weeds, man. I mean, they just cannot grasp those great concepts. And he says, you're still carnal because you're having all these baby issues that baby Christians have. You have strife, you have envy, You have divisions. He says you walk as men, but in truth, you're just a bunch of spiritual carnal babies. And, uh, you know, how does that happen? Look over at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. Remember now, uh, we have been talking about, in every aspect of this, we have been talking about, you know, spiritual growth. And here's another issue that Paul deals with in the book of Hebrews, and I think this is a great great, uh, uh, added to what we've got here. He says in verse 12, for when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as need, here it is, of milk and not of strong meat. Now, here's where he defines for you, if you don't have this in your Bible yet, milk and meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe or baby, you see? Makes it very clear. But strong meat, and this is what Paul was saying up there in chapter 3, he says, uh, I fed you with milk and not with meat. Now we're going to get a definition of meat. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now that's a great verse. It, It answers a couple of things. First thing it does, it shows you the milk, what that is, versus the meat, what that is. Then the next thing it does, it shows you that, that uh, they, these people here, there came a point in whoever they may be, they come to a point in their life as Christians that they should be teaching somebody the Word of God. But what happens? They have to be taught again the first fundamental principles of the Word of God. Hey, I've known people that were saved 5, 10, 15, 20 years and still struggle with their own salvation. I've known people that, that uh, were saved for many, many years who still don't understand the basic fundamentals of how to make good decisions in your life without getting all kinds of problems in it. They still run on their emotions instead of what the principles of the Bible say. That's just the way it is, and this is what the writer of Hebrews talks about here. Then he says in chapter 3, verses 9 through 17, he kind of brings us back to what I think every Christian's reality should be, and he tries to get this church at Corinth back to a reality. I mean, they are so carnal in the first part here of chapter 3, and they're so messed up, and he can't deal with them on spiritual issues, so he tries to bring it back to what I think is the central theme of every child of God, or at least it should be. And it's found in chapter 3, verses 9 through 17. Uh, Allow me to read that. He says, for uh, for we are laborers together with God. You're God's husbandry. You're God's building. "'According to the grace of God, which is given unto me "'as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. "'But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. "'For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, "'which is Jesus Christ. "'Now if any man build upon this foundation, "'gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, "'every man's work shall be made manifest, "'for this day shall declare it, be "'shall it be revealed by fire.' And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man dwell, or excuse me, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy For the temple of God is holy, which temple are ye? Now, know what he does? He brings it back to the central thing. And that central thing for them, as it is for me and you, is the fact of the judgment seat of Christ. The greatest single focus that you ought to have in your life, and I certainly need to have in my life, about however we approach anything with God after we're saved, is the personal accountability of someday you're going to stand before God and you're going to give an account, with what you did with your life after you got saved. And this is an unknown thing today, and I I feel terrible about it. Let me tell you, at the Judgment Seat of Christ, pastors today, and I know a little bit about pastors, they are going to pay the ultimate price for having churches and standing in their pulpits and talking about all this flowery, sugary stuff, but never warning their people about the one of the two greatest days in the Bible. I don't know if you know it. There's two fundamental days in the Bible, and the whole Bible is built around those days. The first day is the day of the Lord. That's the second coming of Christ when Christ comes back for the nation of Israel. The second one is the day of Jesus Christ, and that is the day that Jesus Christ comes back for you and for me. When God comes back at the second coming of Christ to deal with the nation of Israel, he deals with them as the Old Testament saints as they are to him. When he comes back on the day of Jesus Christ, or sometimes called the day of Christ, it leads to you and me going to the judgment seat of Christ. You can look at our chart over there. Somebody can point it out to you. It's been around any length of time. That's where where it all finalizes. This church has lost its way, as many churches have. They're, they're majoring on the minors. They're dealing with issues that do not matter and they're doctrinally messed up in just about everything. And he says, my God, don't you understand that someday you as a child of God are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account? Nothing, and I know that we're all desensitized to most of the things in the Bible, but nothing scares me more in my life than the thought of standing before God and having wasted my life and messed it up because I could not do what God did not, did not do what God had asked me to do. and Nothing terrifies me more. And I understand. We got people out there that are so lame-brained, they're not afraid of anything, including a holy God. We got people out there that once they get saved and they get a little Bible under their belt, then they pretty much take back control of their life and they just put themselves in whatever situation they want and justify it. And that's what the church at Corinth has done. But you need to understand, and every pastor in this city ought to, but they do not, ought to be preaching at least two or three times a year on the great day of Jesus Christ, when we're going to stand before Him. I'm going to again, and we, I've never—I don't think I did this on Sunday morning. I'm going to give you the eight or nine verses in your Bible that you need to go home, or at least have them in your Bible. And if you don't put them in your Bible, then I'm going to give them to you purely because of the fact that in that day, you will not point your finger at me and say you didn't give them to me. Right. Now, I'm going to show you an eight or nine verses in your Bible that absolutely nail down what we need to look at. First one's right here, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. The second one is Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3. Really that whole first part of that chapter. And there's where he tells you that the judgment seat of Christ, for you and for me, is the terror of the Lord. Romans chapter 14, verse 10 is another one that says about we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation chapter 3, verse 18 talks about the fact that uh, uh, that let no man take your crowns from you because those crowns are what you're going to get at the judgment seat of Christ for figuring out what God wanted you to do. Revelation chapter 16, verse 15 talks about let no man take your garment or hold fast your garments, and that ties into the judgment seat of Christ in a very unique way. 2 uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 tells us that, that if you're going to get anything at the judgment seat of Christ, the, the Christian life is like a race. And the Bible says that everybody runs the race to win, but you only win if you run lawfully. And just imagine, I I watched the Kentucky Derby yesterday, and I watched, uh, you know, it was was 24 hours of preparation for a one-minute race. I mean, I didn't fully understand it. I thought they were still warming up, and it was over. But I watched that big track as they're running around there, and I thought to myself, you know what? Those horses were really going at it. And I I thought to myself, that's exactly, that's exactly what we are as Christians. And and we're running this race, I would give anything in the world. It would be the funniest thing in the world because everybody is so dressed up and so stark and so proper because that's really a big thing. I think it would be the greatest thing in the world for the Kentucky Derby when all these million-dollar horses were running around that track. And right as they got around, the, you know, it starts here and it goes around here and it's right about here, halfway across, one of those horses just jumped the fence and ran right across the middle of the field and then hit the finish line. You think he'd win? You think they put the big, big bouquet of flowers around the horse? No, he cheated. He went through the middle. Well, let me ask you a question. What makes you think that as a Christian, you can get in this race and then you can cut across the middle and still win? I don't think so. I don't think so. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, if we won, win this race, we have to run lawfully. And then 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 talks about him denying our inheritance. Revelation chapter 4, verse 20, talks about laying the crowns at his feet. And uh, uh, he brings them back to a great, great point that needs to be the thing that is central in the way you and I evaluate everything we do in the light of the judgment seat of Christ. Then we move into chapter 4. And in chapter 4, now we've got another issue, and this is a doctrinal issue. And here he says in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, "'Let a man so account of himself "'as the ministers of Christ "'and stewards of the mysteries of God. "'Moreover, it is required in stewards "'that a man be found faithful. Uh, "'But with me it is a very small thing "'that I should be judged of you "'or of a man's judgment. "'Yea, I judge not mine own self. "'For I know nothing by myself, "'yet am I not hereby justified?' By he that judgeth me is the Lord. Now, this is a doctrinal issue here. And what they're not doing here is they're not being stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, it it never ceases to amaze me. And I know the farther we get away from Christianity as time goes on, or I should say the closer we get to the coming of the Lord, the more the apostasy sets in. Everybody knows that. But it, it never ceases to amaze me that if you went to the average pastor today in the average church, just pick one, and ask him what the mysteries of God are, he wouldn't even know. There would be guys who will listen to what I'm going to tell you in just a few moments, and they will say, oh, that's a, uh, that's, a bunch, that's, that's a bunch of hogwash. And the bottom line is, if you asked them what the mysteries were, they wouldn't have a clue. And here's the real problem. We know that there are mysteries in the Bible, because why else would he tell pastors to be stewards of those mysteries? As a pastor, I'm to to understand stewardship. It always bothered me that pastors wanted to, they always took the word stewardship as money, and they always used it as a good club to beat it over your head that you ought to give your money to the church because you ought to be a good steward. Well, maybe that might be true, but the bottom line is a pastor has some things that he needs to be a steward over. And one of them, according to this passage, is the mysteries of God. And yet the average pastor has no idea what they are. If you want to really measure the, a man's ability with his Bible, you can measure it on two things, and it's real simple. The first thing is, does he understand the mysteries that are in the Bible? And you measure him with his Bible by that. You got a pastor or you know of a pastor or you know of somebody that that if you ask them what the mysteries are in the Bible and they can't lay them out, explain them out, they may be the nicest guy in the world. He may be somebody that you can have a great time with, play golf with, whatever. Just don't take him too seriously on the Bible. And that's not coming from me. That's coming from Paul where he said that we are to be stewards of the mystery if we account ourselves as a minister. Uh, That's just the way it is. And yet, what are those mysteries in the Bible? The second thing you want to judge him by is, does he stay faithful as God's steward in teaching them to his people? One of the first things that we did when we started our church, still online. You can get it. The date's there. It's almost at the beginning of our church. We started with the seven mysteries. But fairly, we went through the whole systematic study of of God's system of sevens. And exactly, we talk about it all the time. I don't know how many times somebody's asked a question or we've alluded to it. And you get it in everything that we do. Why? Because we are to be stewards of those mysteries. You know, and it's a simple fact. It's just the way God fixed it. And yet, you know, Thursday night we talked about, somebody asked a question out of 1 Corinthians about the deep things of God. I hath not seen, hear, not heard, but the deep things of God. We ran that back to Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 29 and, and looked at those deep things are given to you and to your children. Then we ran it over to, uh, Dale gave us some other verses and we ran it over to a couple of other places and we saw how it all ties in with where it's at. Hey, those deep things of the Word of God are the things that God reveals to men and women who are faithful in their stewardship with the Bible. You want to know the deep things of the Word of God? I'll tell you something right now. Those deep things of the Word of God that you want to learn, they start with you understanding the mysteries because those mysteries are key. And the reason why they're called mysteries is because God just does not give them out to every bozo that says he's a Christian. You got to have some things in your life and some attitudes in the right place toward that book and you've got to see some things the way God tells you to see them, and then God reveals them to you. And you can argue all day that the fact, well, they're not really important. Well, they're important enough that Paul said to the church at Corinth, you need to know them, and you need to be stewards of them. Don't, don't brush off the fact that you don't think it's important just because you didn't spend the time to figure it out. I mean, just take your lump and move on with it. I mean, that'd be, you know, that'd be a good thing to do. Seven places in the New Testament. After the four gospels, you're told that there's mysteries. And there's seven of them. In 1 Timothy 3:16, it talks about the mystery of the virgin birth. Now, when you study that out, it's more than just, oh, Jesus was in a manger and he was born from a woman. Do you know how many other doctrinal things you've got to pull from throughout the Bible to understand that mystery? Then there's a mystery of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. And these seven things, he tells you, this is a mystery. Wow, do you know what? You know the average person today that's been, give me somebody saved 10 years that's not part of this church, and let me sit down with them and simply ask them one question. Explain to me, give them a Bible, what happened inside you the day you got saved? Don't give me the verbiage terminology. Explain to me what changed about you the day you got saved. They couldn't even tell you. Couldn't even tell you. And the reason why is because they don't understand the mystery. Do you realize what that entails to study that mystery? Then you have the mystery of the Jew and Gentile in one body. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, do you understand what what the material you got to get to put all that together to understand it how and why today in the church age, the Jew and Gentile is in one body? Then you have the, the, the fourth one in Romans eleven twenty five, 25, the restoration of the nation of Israel. Here's a good question for you. Stump yourself with this. Why does there have to be a resurrection of the nation of Israel if the Jew and the Gentile are all in one body? The answer is a mystery. The answer is getting the deep things in the Bible that lays all those things out so you understand how it lays out. There's more of the Bible than just you know, the seven spiritual laws, you know. I mean, it, but, but you've got to, it, it's not hard. you just got to start and do it the way God tells you to do it. There's the mystery, the fifth one, of the rapture of the church. Well, wow, how entailed is that? I mean, it's an incredible thing. And that's more than just, you no. Know, I got a book and it showed me how we're all going to go up. It's a lot more than that in the Bible. There's the sixth one, the mystery of the Antichrist in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. The, the last one's the mystery of Babylon the Great, Revelation chapter 17, verse 5. And then you come to the aspect that there's seven mysteries given to the church, and then in the Gospels, there's 12 mysteries given to the nation of Israel. You see, you've got a set for the church, you've got a set for the nation of Israel. And I suggest if you don't really like this, you just go home to do it and get a concordance and look up the word mystery, and get you a magic marker and mark the word out every time you find it. He tells you over and over and over about these mysteries. And then you find out there's a set of seven mysteries to the church and there's a set of 12 mysteries to the nation of Israel. And then he told you in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that we as ministers of Christ are to be stewards of those ministries and he gets on the church because they're not teaching them. You know why this church was a baby church? You know what will grow a church up? When we talk about growing people up, it's learning the mysteries. You cannot learn the mysteries, understand the mysteries, go into all the depth of getting them, and stay a baby Christian because it grows you up in the understanding of it all. And of course, to me, it's an incredible thing. In the gospel, you got 12 mysteries to the nation of Israel. You got seven of them in chapter 13, then you got a break for five chapters, and then the last five are in chapters 18 through chapter 25, and nobody even knows why it's laid out that way. Don't even know why. And that's why most pastors are so busy beating stewardship up over uh, you, us old guys that's been around for a while. Remember the stewardship banquets we used to have years ago? Remember how everything was built around stewardship month? And for one month on Sunday going to church, all you heard was money, give money, give the son of money and give more money. And it was all about beating you up to death on you, you got to be a good steward. You get these little stewardship cards and you'd have to pledge how much money you're going to give next year. It was all set up, in it, but never one time did you hear any pastor, any time, any place, anywhere, ever get up and teach you the mysteries and be a good steward in that. See, it's all about what you do for, for the pastors. It's not today what the pastors can do for you. You're not here to do anything for me. I'm here to do something for you. That's the job of a pastor. Then we get into the second issue, and I think this is a great one. We're going we're gonna to have some fun with this one. I think it's Mother's Day. Let's have some fun. In chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, let's pick it up there. Uh, he says this. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Now notice Paul. He's stern, but yet he loves them, and he equates them as a son. For though you have, and this is a great verse, for though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, because of what he just said, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. For this cause have I sent unto you Timothy, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, here's the second issue. And this happens with spiritual babies all the time. We see another issue they have. Now they have taken issue with the man that God sent them. Now I started out this morning by saying that God never intended, God never intended you just to get saved and to figure out the Bible on your own. No, the model in the Bible is that God will send you a man to teach you the Bible. I mean, uh, the model of it and the definitive passage on it is in Acts chapter eight, where that Ethiopian eunuch out there in the backside of the desert, he's reading his Bible. He doesn't understand a thing that he's reading. God sends him Philip, a man. Philip goes over and says the classic question, understandeth what thou readest? And the guy gives back the standard greatest answer that sets it right where it needs to be. He says, how can I except God guide me? Is that what it says? No. Well, thank you for wording me there for a minute. How can I except the Holy Spirit of God lead me? Is that what it says? It says, how can I except some man guide me? That's what God does. God will put a man in your life to teach you the Bible. And he says it right there. He says you have 10,000 instructors in Christ. Everybody in your life is going to tell you, but God will put one central person in your life that will be the guy that God gives you to help you get the Bible down. In my life, it was Mel Sabaka. In his life, it was Peter S. Ruckman. In in Ruckman's life, it was you, Paul. It goes right down the line, and in the Bible, it's Paul and Timothy. The Bible says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was not that light, but he was what? He was sent to bear witness of that light that what? That all men through him, the man, might believe. See that thing? God's going to send you a man. You're going to hear all the time. Well, where do you go to church? Well, I go to old pastor. Ah, oh, you're just following a man. You're just following. That's what you're supposed to do. Guy said to one of my kids one time years ago, he says, where do you go to church? He told him, he says, Are you in Bob Alexander's class? And he says, yeah. He says, oh, you're following a man. And he said, well, what do you mean I'm following a man? Well, he says, Bob teaches the King James Bible doesn't have any errors in it. He said, well, I believe that too. And he said, well, you're following a man. My boy said, you believe the Bible has errors in it? That kid said, absolutely. My boy said, who taught you that? See, everybody says you're following a man is following a man. Your job is to make sure you're following the right man. And in this case, the church at Corinth had got too spiritually big for their britches. Now, they're questioning the man that God sent them. And he puts an end to the stupid remarks stupid Christians make about following a man. He said over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Follow me, even as I'm followers of Christ. People get out their nose, bend out their joint, and they say, Well, you know what? Uh, somebody said to some of you a while back, uh, it's been a couple of years ago. You know what? Well, uh, you're just following Bob. Is that God's church or is that Bob's church? Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. Now, I know it's God's church, but I guarantee if I walk out of here this afternoon and leave you by yourself, God's not going to come down and say anything to you. He's not going to become your pastor tomorrow. You see how stupid people are? People get the idea that, uh, that God, uh, yes, it's God's church, but God uses men and he uses women, and God does it that way. You, you only had one choice to make this morning when you came to church, and it was a real simple choice. Uh, when you came to church and got up this morning and you know, cleaned your head out and got yourself all ready to go and, and got thinking about it and started to get yourself dressed to come here, you only had one decision, and it was real simple. The only decision you had to make is, is God here or is he not? Do you get what God wants you to have here or do you not? It's simple. It's real simple. And if you don't, hey, then you need to find some place where you do get everything that God wants you to have because that's the way God does it. That's just the way he does it. And, of course, they're coming down here in 2 Corinthians. They're asking him for letters of of, of confirmation of who he is. And that's, that's what babies do. God sent them the man that God wanted them to have. He says up here at the beginning, he says, as my beloved sons, I warn you, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you have not many fathers. And he's basically saying, hey, you got a lot of people telling you about things in the Bible, but you better dance with the one who brought you. You better get to the point where you realize that, that uh, somebody fathered you spiritually and God put somebody, in this case, Paul, in your life. And then he does, he does one of the greatest things, I think, that, that he could have done. And I, I think this is, shows the wisdom of Paul. Look at verse 17. And this is a great principle. I love this. For this cause have I sent unto you Timothy, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, this was a stroke of genius. This was a stroke of genius. And this is a great principle, and you want to learn this principle. This will serve you no matter where you go the rest of your life because you're always going to find people. You're always going to be uh, uh, associated with people. You're always going to have somebody in your life that is going to be rivaling probably to teach you the Bible. And it's a great thing. It's a great thing. This, This was a stroke of genius. He says, wherefore, because of the problems they're having. He says, for this cause I send to you, Timothy, Now, you know what Timothy was sent for? He tells you in verse 17. To bring them back into remembrance. Now, let me give you a great principle here. Paul knew what I'm about to tell you is the bottom line truth. Because people get there. When people don't want to do what's right, people will make you out to be the worst person bandolero on planet Earth. Because they want to justify themselves. And sometimes it gets confusing. But Paul goes right to the matter. Paul didn't argue with them. Do you notice that? He didn't come in here and say, well, you know who I, he didn't do that. He did the smartest thing he could have done because you can argue with what a man is, you can argue with what a man does, but you cannot argue with the fruit the man produces. Baba, why aren't you a terrorist? I mean, I'm a heretic. I'm a subversive. I'm a control freak. Why aren't you as Why aren't you why not you out with David Koresh out there? He's dead, but why aren't you take on after him? Zach, why weren't you part of the Oklahoma bombing? Wasn't born yet. Well, that's <laughs> <laughs> you are no fun. <laughs> you are no fun at all, Zach. I'm not even going to talk to you anymore today. (laughs) Bob, you were in the military. How long have we been together off off and on with tapes? 18 years. years. You were in the Navy, weren't you? Flew rear seat in the movie Top Gun. (laughs) (laughs) Why didn't you ever bomb Washington? They didn't ask you to. They didn't ask you to. Okay, you're not any help either. (laughs) Now, why aren't you two? How long have we been together? We've been together for a long time, right? Many, many, many years how come you guys aren't robbing banks? I mean, you got your getaway car. <laughs> Why aren't you singing in a nightclub? You got a great voice. You could be out there making millions of dollars. You see? I mean, you with a, you're following a guy who's just, you know, he's worldly. He's just a mess. Why, how did you turn out so good? My point is this. You want to find out what a guy's ministry, what he's really made of? And I'm, I'm talking in the reference of Paul here, but, you know, it's in our practical world, too. Just look at what he turns out. If the guy's such a heretic, if the guy's such a mind freak, if the guy's such a controller, then why where's the punch bowl at today? Did I miss that? John, why didn't you get the punch out? I mean, what's the deal? But you see, when people like the church at Corinth, baby Christians, don't want to do what's right, they they point their fingers at other people who are doing what's right? and to make themselves look better. I mean, do you remember if, if when people go out of here, and probably nobody ever has, but when people comes out of here and tears this church up and badmouths this church and says, what, what does that say about you who stay here? That would infuriate me. Because if you're still here and you stay here, then you must be what I am. Otherwise, you'd be smart as they are and leave. Don't that bother you? I'd punch somebody's lights out. Just on the aspect of well in Jesus' name, but just on the aspect, just on the aspect of just on the aspect of, of you accusing him, I go there. That means John 1 2. And of course, it's always that way. It was that way with Paul. It would be that way no matter where you're at in whatever church. But you gotta see, Paul's a genius. Because Timothy went in and he says, What is your guy's deal? Well, he's this and he's that and he said Hey, look at me. I listen to him better than anybody. I went with him on missionary trips. If, you're, if he's what you say he is and he's not God's man the way you say he says he is, how did I turn out the way that I am? You're telling me that I'm that way too? Oh, no, 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 Timothy, you're okay. Uh, how am I okay if he's not okay when he's been the one that taught me everything I know? See where it goes? Paul's a genius. And look what he says. He says, I say, he says he said, uh, for this cause I send unto you, Timothy." Timothy, who my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of what? My ways, see, which be in Christ. And I teach everywhere in church. Hey, solve the problem. What do you say to that? And of course, it's the great principle that you can say whatever you want to say about whoever you want to say, but the real proof of he is what he is or what he is not is in the final element that he puts out, the fruit that he produces. it's just that simple. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. And we hope at some point Zach does get born so he has his chance to prove to the world that he's not a terrorist. Now, let's go to chapter 5. Again, here's another issue. This church is allowing sin to run rampant in the church. He says, chapter 5, verse 1, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, uh, as is not so much named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife, and are puffed up and have not rather mourned that she hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily am absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has done so this deed. In other words, he's saying, I don't need to be there because the word of God already covers what, how you got to handle this. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorifying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaven the whole lump. Now, this is a really good chapter full of great principles. And the first thing we see here that, that, uh, you know, that they're not dealing with sin uh, the way that they should in the accountability structure of it. And don't misunderstand me. I think the number one aspect of the church needs to be reconciliation. And I don't know of any problem anybody ever gets into that cannot be reconciled and worked through. It just It's not—it's just the way it is. Uh, you know, in this particular case, a man has gotten into fornication with his father's wife. Well, that's a pretty stickly thing that's going to cause a lot of issues because, you know, obviously there's family members in this church and everybody's going to take sides. But they're not willing to deal with it biblically. And it looks like they're not willing to deal with it at all. And it looks also looked at the man who did this deed. He's not, he's not ready to repent from it and he's not willing to get right. And the bottom line of any church or ministry uh, in Christian in dealing with Christians obviously should be restoration. And, uh, you know, restoring people that, uh, uh, that when they fall, they seem to be happy about the fact that he fell here. But yet the great principle is this, and this is what comes out of these. You know, you have a problem. And he shows them how to address the problem, but in doing that, he'll give you and us a great, great principle in dealing with people. And it's found in verse 5. It's the great aspect of delivering such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, let me explain what that is. In dealing with people, many times you see it with parents with their children. Most parents are not willing, can't, don't have the wherewithal to be able to do it. Uh, but it's probably, in many cases, the reason it's the only thing that will work. Uh, I know it's true. In, it, it, it basically is the concept that you can all understand, letting somebody get so far down that all they can look is up. And we all understand that. Now, notice he's saying here to turn somebody over to Satan. For How can you turn a Christian over to Satan? Well, look at the passage. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. God doesn't run your flesh. And here's what you get. You get a Christian that won't do what's right. Let's put it into easy context. Let's, you get a rebellious teenager, and maybe they're 18 or 19 years old. Maybe they're 20 years old, and they're still living at home. They live out of home pretty much on their own. But they're living in your home, and they just simply will not do what's right. And they cause all kinds of problems. You've tried to reason with them, tried to work it out, tried to help them, tried to do everything in the world, come to no avail. They won't respond to the Bible, or they do for a while, and it goes back, whatever. All, you know the scenario. Bottom line is, there comes a point where if you really want to reach that person, that you've got to do the radical thing that is probably the most radical thing within the Bible, and that's what he's talking about here. I had a man one time whose boy was a drunk, a, a, a drunk, and the man had never got into drinking. And he tried to work with his kid and he tried to work with his boy and the kid was on drugs. He was doing alcohol, just a mess. Bringing it home, he had younger kids. Finally, the dad, he he got enough moxie to be able to do this. And he said, he said, you know what, son? He sat him down lovingly. He said, you know what? See this house? God gave us this house. You know my job that buys the food that we have? God gave me that job. Everything here, God has provided for us. And son, I love you to death. But the bottom line is this. This house belongs to the Lord. We're going to live our life for the Lord. And I just cannot any longer take the things that God has given me and bless me with to feed you and take care of you so you can run out and serve the devil. He said, now, son, I love you, but I want to tell you something. Here it is, and this is what it is. If the devil and his crowd are such fun to run with, if the devil and his crowd is where it's at for you, If that's where you're at, that's where we're at. But you let the devil take care of you. Don't go out and live with the devil's crowd and then come back and ask God to feed you. If the devil is a great guy to hang out with, let him feed you. If he's a great guy to hang out with, let him give you a place to stay. If he's a great guy to hang out with, let him take care of you. And what it was, that kid, he put him out. Sounds like a terrible thing to do. But when they get to that point, parents, you got to sell your helicopter you got to quit throwing them to the care packages. you got to quit, as they say in the law enforcement terminology, aiding and them, abetting them, giving them a comfortable life when they don't want anything to do with God. And you can kid yourself, you know, well, we're trying to do it to them. Hey, after 10, 15, 20 years, I'd say you overspent your account. There, at some point, you got to clear off a spot, and you say, "I love you, but this is the way it is," and that is what it means: turning them over. Let the devil. Let it, you know what. If you got a kid who's a wimpy kid, anyhow, he thinks he's a man, but you know, he's 18 or 19 year old, knows nothing about life, or a gal, you know. And I'll tell you what: they live two or three nights under I-435 bridge in a cardboard box. You'd be amazed what that would do for them. You'd be amazed at how quickly. And you say, where do you get that? It's called the prodigal son in the Bible. You see, the pigs look good till you get up close. And then you see how dirty they really are. And then you see what they eat. Now, you sit at home and you can go to that pantry and pour everything you want. And mom cooks great meals and great dinners. And when they're all gone, boy, and you got to eat rocks, you got to go behind McDonald's and go through the trash dumpsters, I mean, I'm telling you, man, you know, sometimes it's you got to put them down so far that all they can look is up. And when they look up, you don't want to see you hovering over. Here it comes. No, you want them to see God. But you know why they can't see God? Because you get in the way and all they see is you. And that's their biggest problem. I told a parent a couple of times years ago, they had, I said, you know what? The biggest problem of your kid isn't your kid. The biggest problem of your kid is you. Because you won't deal with it the way it needs to be dealt with it's always you know an excuse i understand that but there comes a time when first corinthians chapter 5 verse 5 is a viable workable tool in your spiritual toolbox to get somebody's attention you turn them over to the satan for the destruction of the flesh what does that mean it means that their flesh gets cold, their flesh gets hungry, their flesh doesn't get what it wants. In some cases, their flesh gets a black eye, their flesh gets shot, their flesh gets stabbed, their flesh, finally you come to the place where that kid says, my God, this hurts. This isn't what I thought it was. Man, I thought it was all party and fun and running around. Ooh, it's cold tonight. That's what you gotta be able to do. And of course, in this case the scenario, sometimes you have to do that in churches. Sometimes you have to cut them off. And of course, as I said, it's a point of getting so far down that all you can look is up. And then in, in verse 6, another issue, they're glorifying about it. He says, your glorifying is not good. They're, they're not dealing with it right. They're not following the biblical principles. They're not holding this guy accountable. It's just like, oh, what's the big deal, you know? And Southrons are are happy because he fell. And then he makes another great statement. He says that... Uh, their glory is not, uh, is not good. Uh, and then he says, know ye not that a little leaven, leaven the whole lump. You do not want the spirit of unforgiveness to come into your church. You do not want that spirit to come into your church. You, you're, you're better off to lose whoever you got to lose that has an unforgiving spirit than keep them around because that thing, it says leaven. And leaven, a little leaven, Bible says, leaven the whole lump. And there's some great verses in the Bible on leaven. It's Matthew 13, 33, Galatians 5, 9, and Matthew 16, 6 through 8. And of course, we know that leaven is always bad teaching or bad doctrine. In this case, a bad attitude based on bad teaching. So we see that, that, you know, that when somebody falls, no matter what it is, somebody has an issue in their life, you don't go around high-fiving everybody and glad about it. You grieve if they're a brother and sister in Christ because that's exactly what we need to do because that's the only way that God can do. God has to come down and do it through the Spirit of God in you, in me, and in the church at Corinth, which it's not there because they're not operating in God's wisdom. All right, let's look at chapter 6 here. In chapter 6, there's a couple great principles that are being misused by the church in Corinth. I'm going to open it up by reading the first seven verses here, and you want to mark this because this is very crucial. This is some good stuff here. Dare any of you having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that ye shall judge angels? Uh, How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are the least esteemed in the church. That's what they're doing. I speak to your shame. Is 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 it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge uh, between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, that is before the unbelievers. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. Why do you rather take wrong? Why do you rather suffer yourself to be disfrauded? Now, here's what's happening. Obviously, we know there's divisions and there's strife in this church. <clears throat> the church is designed to take care of everything in-house. It's like the old saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, <clears throat> what happens in the church should stay within the church. And the church has its means wherewith to be able to solve problems that come up between brothers and sisters in Christ. And now if somebody's in another church, that's another deal, you know, but it, it's not as easy to work out, but it, it should be able to work out. But the bottom line, here's what they're doing. They're in a situation here where <coughs> they're, uh, they're, they're taking each other to court over issues that should be solved by the church. Two great statements he makes in verse 2 and verse 3, which are great doctrinal statements, and we talked about this a couple of Thursday nights ago. He's basically saying that these saints, the church, is going to judge the world someday. We know that to be the great white throne judgment. We talked about that. And then he says in verse 3 that we're going to judge angels. Those are the fallen angels that left with Satan that also are going to show up at the great white throne judgment. The point is this. He's saying that someday you and I are going to judge the unsaved world with Christ. If that's the case, why can't you solve these little matters now within your church? And, of course, the answer is they're spiritual babies. They're not been in the Bible. And uh, he says in verse 5, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. If no one wise enough to help solve these problems, you know, and many times in situations, the the church has to go in and mediate. And I've dealt with this all of my life, and it's something that is always going to be there. And he says down here in verse 6 and 7, it's wrong to take God's people's issues before the unsaved world. And it is, it is, it is. And uh, it's it's just, it's just not the thing to do because the church has the wherewithal to fix it. And over my years, I've seen all kinds of problems that I've had to either get into, mediate, which is part of the job, part of what you do. Uh, one time, a, a group of people in Kansas City, uh, really Raytown, they were putting together what they called a Christian phone book. And it was a thing that everybody in it was Christian. And the idea was that, you know what, uh, we ought to just take care of Christians, and if they, they got jobs, let's give our business to Christians. And they brought him in at the church I was at at the time, and I was the guy that kind of took care of those things, and I refused them. And they were quite upset. The, guy, the little gal could not understand why we as Christians in a church that claimed to be Christians would not want to accept Christian phone books that would give our congregation access to all kinds of Christians that were in business that we didn't have to deal with the unsaved world. My answer to her was simply the biggest hosens I ever got in my life I got from Christians. (laughs) Though Christians have treated me a lot worse than the world ever has. And uh, she didn't understand that. And I think she was from the church at Corinth too. I'm not sure, but anyway. (laughs) But uh, let me give you some examples here and explain the format. And personally, let me give you a couple pointers here. First of all, if you enter into any kind of Situation with anybody, I would, I would tell you that don't assume that just because you're two are Christians, that it's all going to be on the up and up. I think that that's the number one mistake that people make. They think, well, because they're Christian, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, you know, it won't go wrong. Oh, devil will never mess that detail. I guarantee you. Don't assume that because they're Christian, you won't have issues with them because that, that, is, the that is the fatal flaw that you're going to get into in dealing with it. Second thing I do, if you do decide to get into some kind of agreement, whatever, we'll talk about some of the scenarios here, That I would get it in writing. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Don't think that somebody, because I'm going to show you some principles in the Bible here that tells you that's exactly what you should do. Get it in writing, because we already know that the devil's gonna get into the details. You already know what happened to church at Corinth. I've had people come to me and somebody said, Well, I gave so and so this and I and so and so said they were gonna do this, or so and so gave me this, and so and so said they were gonna do this for so much money, and then and I first thing I asked, did you get it in writing? No. I don't know what you want me to do. Unless it is in writing, you don't have any kind of proof of anything. And you know it's your word against theirs. And uh, it's a thing where if you're going to enter into that, know that there's always a potential for problems there, and you just make sure you get everything in 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 writing that it, it's, that if you have to take it to the church, and and hopefully you won't, but I mean getting in writing would be a good alternative if somebody would not want to go to church, because you've got to document it. But you're going to find, you know, in business deals, you know, work disputes. I've had people go to work for people, you know, and <clears throat> over the years, and it, it doesn't usually work out very well. Something happens, you know, either the amount of money is not right or they didn't do it. You know, people get the idea. They think that, you know, because, you know, I've seen people go to work for a Christian, and when they get into work for a Christian, they think, well, because he's a Christian, I'm a Christian, I don't have to work as hard as everybody else. <laughs> you ought to work harder, see, and you think that, well, because, you know, we're going to the same church together, he's going to cut me some slack or she's going to cut me some. No, no, you don't expect that. But we do, you see. It's like, how about it when you think that you, you do have somebody do something for you, maybe they're a carpenter, maybe they're this or maybe they're that, and they're going to build something for you. You automatically think that, what do you think? You think that they, that's, they're going to get golden spiritual two by fours that don't rot. You think that they've got any other tools or way to do it? You know what? They do what they do, and some of them do it really well, and some of them do it not so well. And you fall victim to that. And you just got to get that kind of stuff in writing before. I've known guys that were builders uh, years ago that, that build people's houses, and all the Christians wanted them to build their house. And they built the worst houses on planet Earth. And every person had a problem with them. You know, it's, it, that's just the way it is. But when you don't get that thing down, then, then you have a problem. And I, you know, I, it's just where you go. And I'll tell you something else. You know, you lend, uh, co-signing for people's loans is always a big problem. You, some Christians got a sad sob story, you know, and they look like they're a really okay person. And you know what? And you say, you say, well, you know, I got to do the car. I can't go to work. And you look at your wife and I can't, I want to got a car I can buy, but I, they won't give me the car without a co You look at your wife. She looks at you. You look at God. You look at each other and you want to do the right thing. So you say, well, you know what? This is what the Christian thing ought to be. Uh, we'll co-sign for you. And you know what? You're going to lose your car. You're going to lose your money. Rule of thumb is, here it is. I'll just tell you, this is from 40 years of experience. Don't ever lend anybody any money that you ain't willing to lose. That's a good piece of advice because you're going to lose it. (laughs) You're going to lose it probably. Don't ever lend anybody any money that you're not, you can't just write off and say, it's no big deal. In fact, if I was you, I'd just set it up to the place where you didn't even require it back if you could. But maybe you can't, but I'm just telling you. Don't, you know, it just, you know, it just, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work and you get people, you know, that I had a guy one time that I had a motorcycle. I used to ride a motorcycle with a bunch of people years and years and years ago, and I got past it, you know, and there was a kid in my my church years ago, uh, and he was a good kid. He wasn't a bum. He was a good church, good kid, and, uh, you know, he got married, and he didn't have a car, and he needed some cheap transportation, and he asked me if I wanted to sell my motorcycle. And I said, "Yeah, I'll sell it to you." You know, it was a—it was a, probably a thirty-five hundred dollar bike, and it was only like four or five years old. And I said, "You can have it for six hundred dollars." You know, there, thats a pretty good deal. I mean, it was immaculate. I didn't keep it immaculate. A friend of mine just kept it. Kept it in his garage. It was immaculate. It was a six hundred Kawasaki. If that makes any difference to you, <laughs> and it was a—it was a screamer. And so he got the bike. You know what? I just said, you know what? Tell you what, just pay me, you know, pay me $50 a month. You know what, no big deal, just whatever. And you know what, two months went by, not a thing. Three months went by, not a thing. A year went by, not a thing. I mean, I used to stand up at church for Bible study. He'd be riding in my motorcycle, parking it down there in the thing, coming up and hugging me and then going down to that thing. I said, that's a nice bike I got there. <laughs> or I had there. You know what? I never said a thing. Never said a thing. Did he ever pay me? Not a dime. Not a dime. And I and I wonder. You know, and I just, I wonder what people think like that. I, you know, and I do. I do the. I do the the good side. I just figured that he. You know, he when he was born, he had lack of oxygen for an hour or so, and that side of his brain died. You know that he just forgets that you owe somebody $600, even the fact that you're riding the bike right up to where you're standing there, and you're looking at it, and, you, and you, you don't want to ask for the money, but you just say some simple things. Where's my money? <laughs> you just say some simple things. How's it, how's it working for you? You know, jog your memory a little bit. Or, you know... I don't have my wallet with me. Or, you know what? Uh, is this your wallet? <laughs> you know, that's a, or, you know, if you really want to get provocative, you know, boy, I'll tell you what, that's the best $600 you ever spent. <laughs> 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 Not a thing, man. <laughs> Not a thing. And I'll tell you what, it was one of those deals where that's just where it goes, see? And I'm telling you, when uh, you got an issue with somebody, You don't you don't take it to the you take it to the church if it's a big enough deal that it gets out of control and it's a thing where to then you so you don't have any problems between the two because they fester they have problems you got to be pretty spiritual just to walk away from it because most people can't because they feel like they got hosed hey I get up every morning knowing I'm going to get hosed you know I mean your favorite verse is this is the day the Lord hath made let us be glad and rejoice. My favorite verse is, this is the day the Lord hath made. You're going to get it in the neck. That's, that's how you look at life. And that's, that's what you got, see? I mean, that's just what you got. And then he gets up here in, in another great principle. And all this kind of goes to go there. Verse 8, 9, 10, 11. Now he lays out a great doctrinal thing. Uh, Nay, you do wrong and not defraud that your brethren. Uh, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor uh, idolaters or adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Those are all unsave people. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. All unsave people. Now watch this. Now, here's the great doctrine we talked about in Romans defined for you. Watch verse 11. And such were some of you. But you're what? You see, you're not that anymore once you get saved. You're now God's child. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And this is the great doctrine. This is the great doctrine of justification. See, This is the great doctrine laid out here of justification. You once were a thief, covetous, a drunk, reviler, extortioner. You once were a fornicator, an idolater, adulterer, an effeminate. You were all of those things. But the day you got saved, you're no longer these things. Now you're washed in the blood of Christ. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. So this is, a great, <clears throat> this is a great concept and a great passage on on the destination of justification. He says that you are, now you're washed. That would be by the blood of Christ. You have been sanctified. That means you've been set apart from the crowd up there in verse 9 and 10. And then he says, but ye are justified. And justified in the Bible is defined as God declaring me righteous when I'm really not righteous and don't deserve it. God imputing his righteousness to me when I don't deserve it, separating me, washing me from what the world was. Well, now, let me give you these verses here, and then we're going to be finished in Proverbs. These are great principles about dealing with people and jobs, money situations, or whatever. And I'll give you these, and then we'll be done today. All right. And you can take your mother out to lunch, and if she doesn't pay for it, you know, if she don't pay for it, she's going to be after me, and I'll have to mediate between it. Here we go. Proverbs 17, verse 18. A man void of understanding striketh hands and becometh surety in the presence of his friend. Now, striketh hands means you shake on a deal, you see. Now, you find people do it all the time. They get into they get into getting apartments together or get into getting a car together or something, and it's not detailed out, and so they all have an issue. Well, later on, well, you didn't say that. No, I said this. No, well, detail it out. He said, a man void of understanding striketh hand. Then he says in Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 3, My son, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou striketh thy hand with a stranger, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth, thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. Do this now, my son, and deliver thyself. When thou art come into the hand of thy friend, go humble thyself and make sure thy friend. See, document it. And he says the bottom line is if you're a surety, that means you co-sign for somebody or you're, you're going to be so sure for somebody in some deal. And you stricken your hand, you shook hands on a deal, then you as a Christian are snared with the words of your mouth. So you better make sure the guy you're doing it with is going to be up on his end. Then Proverbs chapter 11, verse 15. Where no counsel is, the people fall, but in a multitude of counsels there is safety. He that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it. For he that hateth surety is sure. That's a good one. I like the word that you're going to smart for it. That's an old English term. The old English terms, the words themselves, when they used them, they had a a further meaning. And it says back, we don't use that word anymore. You say, ooh, that's smarts. You know why you say that? Because you're supposed to be smarter after you just did that. say, ooh, that's smarts you could say it in the world today, "Ooh, I got smarter. I'm not going to touch that again. It's hot." You know? And what happens is when you get into these deals, you're going to smart for it. But hopefully you'll learn from it and you won't get you won't get taken in a situation twice. You'll be smarter. But you know, and this goes back to what I'm saying, you have to have a biblical principle behind everything that you do. And when you do that and you operate no matter what. This is what the church of Corinth has failed on. They're not they're not Lord, Jesus Christ is really not Lord in this church because they've got the Bible. They've got everything that God gave them through Paul. They're even rejecting him, yet they're not doing it. And being Christ being the Lord of your life, and I'm not much on this lordship uh, style of ministry. I think it goes too far, but I understand what it means that Christ being the Lord of your life. And simply defined in the Bible, it, means, it doesn't mean that you're sinless by any stretch of the imagination. It simply means that you have a biblical principle behind everything you do. That is, he says in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and then not do the things that I say? If he's Lord of your life, then follow the principles. But you've got to have the principles to follow the principles. All right, well, we're going to hold up there. Now, next week, let me tell you something here. We're probably going to devote all of next week to chapter 7. Because chapter 7 is the passage in the Bible that talks about marriage, divorce, and remarriage in the Bible. And it is the doctrine to the New Testament church. And we're going to debuff a lot of the old stuff that is hanging around today that messes things up. And I'm going to walk you, especially for you folks that want to learn how to work with people, there are 20 principles in chapter 7. Uh, We have never went through those in Sunday morning or I think going through them in the marriage enrichment class years ago. But we're gonna start, take that chapter and we're gonna go through that so you understand what you're dealing with and get a concept about it. But most of all, realize that this is the doctrine and the church at Corinth is messed up on this. So Paul takes the time to straighten it out. It'll be one of the greatest things if you're interested in knowing the Bible and working with people, it'll be one of the greatest things you have because we'll be able to put a lot of insight into it. I use a lot of good examples. So let's hold up there. Take care of your mother today. Don't forget to sign up for the uh, the uh, uh, Memorial Day picnic. Don't forget Bob Gregg, help us with the cutting the grass for our little gal. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed and I'll see you all Thursday night, Lord willing. Father, we do thank